Hello and welcome back to the Alternative Podcast. This is episode number 29. Uh, today we have a very special guest with us. We've got Mark, who is the founder of a podcast called My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Now that should sum up a lot, but if you need more, then we're going to get Mark to introduce himself. So Mark, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about you, your podcast, why you've set it up? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, of course, my podcast name says it all. My family thinks I'm crazy, and uh, they've thought that for a, wh- a while. You know, it wasn't just the podcast that got them thinking that, although that was sort of a part of where the inspiration came from. Um, I'm also the founder of a podcast cooperative called Alt Media United's free website uh, where we host podcasts and uh, help people, you know, find their audience. There's dozens of people listening to podcasts these days, and I figured, why not make a website that, well, quite frankly, isn't censoring the crap out of us, right? You know, like, let's put a website out there where people can find podcasts like mine and the kinds that I know you create and the kinds that this audience listens to. Let's put them in one place because the Apple and Spotify, they're not ever going to make a conspiracy genre or an alternative genre in their app so let's do it ourselves and and then on top of that i i work with a podcast called tinfoil hat and that was kind of where my family thought i was crazy because amidst uh, all the chaos that happened in 2020 i told them i was quitting my job to work for some guy who lived on the other side of the world uh well the other side of the continent here in in the u.s you know i'm on the east coast sam's all the way on the west coast and i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna quit my job as a delivery guy to work for this comedian and my parents are like what is wrong with you you know like are you losing your mind and uh, as i was driving home that day i'm like oh my family thinks I'm crazy. This is it. This is the realization I had. And I thought, what better you know, phrase for a podcast title than that? And that's where that was born. And truthfully, I've been interested in this kind of stuff since a very young age. It's just a matter of uh, having the time and the energy to, to sort of sort through it. And as I got older, I found that time and, and that energy. And yeah, I've just been kind of taken in through all these different subjects, history, science, you know, all these different weird fringes of both subjects. Um, and eventually I came to to find that I hadn't examined where I am, my own backyard enough. So lately, recently, I've been spending more time uh, looking around where I live and, and trying to find the conspiracies that are close to home and uh that's actually kind of where it all started i just put it on the back burner uh you know 10 years ago when i was in community college uh, a community college aptly titled the gateway community college i went through a gateway and uh found myself on the other side of this sort of uncanny valley between you know the average person and what they hold to be true and what's actually going on and you know skull and bones and yale university and geronimo and all these sort of events started lining up on this timeline and i realized whoa this is a whole history that i haven't been shown this is a whole saga that we weren't privy to in school why why did they keep this from us what are they hiding 
And that's just been endlessly curious and fascinating and you know, trying to to dig up stuff that hasn't already been dug up and you know add maybe some new information to this whole uh really this mystery that is what you know what's going on at Yale University with uh skull and bones is it simply just privilege is it simply just elitism uh or is there something more sinister something more supernatural going on uh at this school what what is this what what's going on at Yale with skull and bones well, for folks who, who aren't familiar um, with American politics, we've had three presidents uh, in office who were once members of this group, Skull and Bones. Uh, President Bush actually ran against another Skull and Bones member, John Kerry, during the 2004 presidential election, which is when a lot of this kind of came to the light and people were asking themselves, how is this fair? How is this constitutional that two men who have sworn a secret oath, you know, could go and run for president? These men, they're not, you know, they're holding this secret oath above their presidential oath, you know? And I mean, concretely so. George Bush, while he was in office, he never, you know, even acknowledged anything going on with Skull and Bones, let alone talked about it. So, yeah, I think there's something really dangerous going on there. And the average person might look at it and say, well, you know, that's how wealth and power are organized. You know, people who are wealthy get more uh, more privilege, they get more opportunities, they get to afford to go to the best and the brightest and be in the best places to, to learn. And you know, I found just from being a, uh, you know, a resident in New Haven that it's really not the case. It seems more like these people are simply kind of getting a, you know, stamp on their pass through life. They're not actually putting in any hard work. They're just doing uh, sort of what society has deemed appropriate and, you know, with very minimal effort. And then, you know, again, with minimal effort, making their way to some influential position within the economy within you know the world markets within politics within you know no, who you know numbers of of different industries you find these people uh taking leadership positions and for what it's it's to keep the power within a certain group of people ultimately that's you know speculative it doesn't start with just me there are others who have speculated this but yeah i, I concur who, who founded the skull and bones so skull and bones was founded in 1832 there were two gentlemen named william huntington russell and alfonso taft uh, alfonso taft is the grandfather of president taft who went on a few decades later to become president uh, he also was a supreme court judge alfonso taft now William Huntington Russell, he founded one of the first National Guards in the United States, and his family is very wealthy. But both of these men uh, were inspired by some things that they learned at the University of Berlin uh, one summer between their junior and senior years of college. They came back and they started this Skull and Bones, uh, allegedly a cha another chapter of something that they were a part of in Germany. Um, and uh, that's where it all began in 1832. Now, at the time, 
these sort of you know college groups were not unpopular it was you know the way things operated you went to college you joined a social club based on your interests and you know those social clubs kind of helped you get a career or network to you know uh really become something of yourself after college and during the 1800s the early 1800s there was a man named William Morgan who wrote a book exposing some rituals uh, from the Freemasons, and the Freemasons killed him. Uh, when this was discovered, the whole nation panicked, and they said, we can't trust these Freemasons. They're willing to break the law and kill people to keep their secrets. So you know, people freaked out, and naturally there were um, you know, politicians who came about that said, oh, well, we're not going to have Freemasons in office anymore. Vote for us, right? And because of this kind of panic, a lot of the groups in these colleges that were sort of semi-Freemasonic or maybe even like stepping stones to become a Freemason in some cases, they shifted gears. Instead of being, you know, secret private organizations, they became public charitable organizations. And that's why we have all of these public charitable, you know, brotherhoods now, like the Shriners and the Lions Club and all these other, you know, key club, you name it. There's uh, the Rotary Club. Like, it's just a thing in American culture. People, you know, in a small town especially, the the men will all join, you know, the, the Kianis Club or the Lions Club, and they go and they have like a meeting once a week there. And, uh, and talk about whatever, like just, you know, not like global affairs and some nefarious stuff, but it's just the way sociologically small towns are organized. Well, in the 1830s, when all of this became kind of uh, dodgy and, and suspicious, some groups, like I said, went public, but groups like Skull and Bones went even more private. They were like, okay, we're not even going to advertise. We're just going to secretly initiate people to join. 15 people per year. Uh, they have to be Yale juniors. Uh, at first, they were only men, only white, which for the most part in the 1800s, that's the only people that were going to Yale and Harvard back then. It's just the way uh, the country was back then. But, um, you know, when you ask, like, well, what is Skull and Bones? Who founded it? Who are these guys? Really, their power and their sort of impetus comes from their connections to the opium trafficking uh, networks that were a part of British, Chinese, and Dutch history. Uh, very much a part of those three nations' history, probably others as well. But when it comes to William Huntington Russell, his cousin, Samuel Russell, was the premier opium smuggler at that time. And some people might suggest or argue that these men, uh, with their influence from these sort of uh, powerful positions that they got themselves in through their, you know, their prowess in school, were able to then create the environment for a black market of drugs to be sold to the immigrants here in the United States. Because you got to keep in mind in the 1800s, the immigrants were for the most part Irish, Chinese, 
um, you know, Italian. Um, I, there's probably others. And then the Native Americans were also a big part of this time period as well, you know, being kind of pushed off of the frontier, uh, being, you know, way, war waged against them, not just physically, but with psychological weapons like alcohol. So, you know, I think the same thing was being done, and this is proven with the opium wars. They did this to the Chinese, where they flooded the culture with opium and, you know, effectively kneecapped a fighting force. And I don't think China to this day has forgiven England and the West for that. It seems like, you know, I've heard some people say that the fentanyl stuff is like a retaliation from what happened all the way back then in the opium wars. So, you know, this kind of stuff has been going on for uh, quite a while. The connections are obvious. When you look at a guy like George H.W. Bush, who was skull and bones, he was also the ambassador to China at some point in his political career. Why? Why, why is a guy from New England, a guy from New England who pretends to be a cowboy, you know, I, I mean, you guys might not be so familiar, but George W. Bush, his son, the big thing that, oh, we're from Texas, we're cowboys. Meanwhile, they grew up in freaking Connecticut, which is where I'm from. There's no cowboys here. So, yeah, they think that they're, you know, like these uh, I don't know, royalty, American royalty. That's essentially what these families have positioned themselves as, is American royalty. You know, they, they've used schools like Harvard, Yale, the College of William and Mary, uh, historically, to become the robber baron wealth the the industrial barons of the you know early 1900s late 1800s that group of people that amassed an incredible amount of wealth they did so by you know sort of playing this uh, nepotism through the american institutions as they were growing they they instilled it with the same nepotism that allegedly they were avoiding by leaving Europe, right? They were sick of the king and the monarchy and the royalty, yet they went and recreated it here in the United States. You just can't teach uh, old dogs new tricks, I guess. But yeah, it seems like uh, it seems like Yale, Skull and Bones, from the beginning, had an agenda to wield power uh, and in a sort of clandestine way. The first spy in American history comes from New Haven, and that's no coincidence that Yale would find its way, you know, to having this skull and bones group, and then 100 years after that, the CIA has found it. You know, this is these are all sort of connected in this very loose way, uh, but you guys love tangents, so... Hit me with some questions and we'll go down some tangents. <laughs> That's some, what you've talked about. And, and when you mentioned the CIA being set up as a, as a link to the skull, skull and Bones, something that happened further down the line. So all of these sort of big, powerful groups throughout the US, would you say the majority of them have some sort of connection with Skull and Bones? Now, when it comes to... Other groups, I think Skull and Bones, what they've done really well for themselves at is being like an infiltrator. So 
this isn't my personal research, but Anthony Sutton has some graphs in one of his books about skull and bones. And his opinion, his speculation is that skull and bones has infiltrated groups like the Bilderbergs, the WEF, Bohemian Grove, and on and on and on, CFR. They select, they recruit people from Yale that will then be good candidates to go on and, and play a position as, let's say, you know, uh, a Tulsi Gabbard or, uh, you know, or a Tucker Carlson or, you know, they play and those are two conservative people. So let's throw a, a, a liberal in the in the mix. Uh, I can't even think of them. That's how many. That's how that's how little I care about politics. I can't even think of another example. But uh, but yeah, they they stack both sides of the of the of the divide, you know, and and essentially put their guys in enough groups to where they can. And again, this is speculative. I'm not, I I don't know this for sure. The thought is that they are managing these other groups by having key people in positions within each group. So, you know, that could just be uh, speculation on Anthony Sutton's part. Um, But I tend to... It, it, it does feel like in politics you've got two separate parties, but they're both pushing in the same direction. Right. And that's why I've sort of disengaged with it as well, because I feel like you vote for one party, it's just the same shit over and over again. Well, and, and you may, yeah, and you may even have people in those parties who are true, genuine, and, and want actual change, but because there's that one or two, you know, actors in there who are just playing a role and working for the same agenda you know they're willing to you know put on a republican t-shirt one day and then the next day they're wearing a democrat t-shirt right you know this is the way that they roll and they push their agenda forward yeah i think that's really one of the problems with democracy is that it's easy for these sort of uh you know private interests to infiltrate and have sway over uh you know our representatives and it's really unfortunate you know that with a country of 300 million people we have something like i don't know one percent or a 0.5 percent uh you know making decisions for the rest of the country i think we ought to have like i think the constitution even says this we're supposed to have something like you know uh five percent representation which means that there should be like instead of 2,000 senators and congressmen, there should be 10,000. Could you imagine how hard it would be to, you know, persuade uh, a congressman if there were 10,000 of them? You know, if there's 2,000, that's easy. You just have to find the five or 10 guys that are women or men that are, you know, in kind of control of this committee that you're trying to affect a change on. You bribe half of them and boom, there you go. You know, enough of them voted to get your decision changed. But if we have thousands and thousands of congressmen and senators, an appropriate amount for the population of this country, the United States, that kind of stuff would be a lot harder. And I think that's why we're seeing schools like Yale, Harvard, and so on become so unaffordable to the average person. They've become so unaffordable that Mo- the majority of students at some of these schools are from other countries. 
they're from they're they're educating people from other countries which i don't have a problem with that i, I you know the more the merrier we should all treat each other equally and whatnot but you know this is a this is these are countries that you know or these are colleges that existed prior to the united states you know harvard was founded in the 1600s yale was founded in 1701 you think those schools are loyal to the United States? I've questioned that, and I, I'm starting to think not. I don't think they are. I don't think they're loyal to the United States, and and that's unfortunate because they're using uh, the United States and, and have, have us bent over a barrel. I mean, Yale and Harvard, they don't even pay taxes because they're, uh, they're considered like religious schools. It's ridiculous. So these schools were initially founded by the European settlers that came over? Yeah, and you know they were they were American by then. You know, like the the folks that that started Harvard, I wouldn't consider them like European. You know, because they were they they left Europe. You know, they didn't want to go back to Europe. But slowly but surely, Yale and Harvard, yeah, they kind of became what Oxford and Cambridge are. You know, obviously Oxford and Cambridge are much older and more prestigious, huge long histories there. But Yale and Harvard, yeah, they've kind of uh, towed that line rather than, you know, distinguishing themselves as an American institution. I mean, even during the Revolutionary War, uh, the British troops decided not to destroy Yale University. They could have. They were standing right there at the, you know, in New Haven. They, they, there was a battle. They invaded New Haven. They killed some people. And they looked at Yale and they said, no, this is too pretty. We'll just move on. This is too pretty. What kind of war general says, no, this is too pretty? That's ridiculous. To me, it seems like there was something going on there where they said, no, this is a strategic importance. If we lose this revolutionary war, we have allies at this school that can help us win the next war. And they tried to do that. It's called the War of 1812. The British came back. They're like, we're going to fight you again. You know, and now we're apparently allies with them. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm. I'm anti-England or anything. I think England's a great country. I know you both are there right now, I'm pretty sure. So I'm not, you know, no hate on England at all. But I think that people need to understand politically the, this time between the 1500s and the 1800s. We take for granted the, the history that we're given. So much happened that has been just kind of left to the side. They're like, yeah, that happened, but you know, it didn't really affect anything else. I just I think that there's a lot of manipulation in the the telling, the retelling of history, you know, and I'd wonder even like what kind of disparities we'd see if we compared like uh an English history education to an American history education and like what events you focus on in an English, you know, school, let's say grades one through 12, right? Not college or anything like that, but grades one through 12, just the difference propagandically, psychologically, what they're talking about. I think there's a difference. I, I don't know because I haven't been uh, across the Atlantic, but it definitely feels like there's some political, um, there's, there's political sort of hangups from that time period that are still affecting politics today. Uh, things like land, rights things like you know sovereignty and the, the treaties that were made with various native american groups all of these things have been swept under the rug because they don't want to they don't want to deal with the truth the repercussions of you know seeing these 
these uh, 100, 200 year old crimes with a modern perspective. I think they want people to kind of forget that, that all that stuff happened, you know, and it's like, no, we won those battles. Don't go back and rewrite the rules. You know, the rules were the rules back then. That's how it was. We can't turn back and change the past, which I don't think that we should. But I, I do think that there are some things that need to be acknowledged and, and maybe well, there's a lot we can learn from history, right? Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, with the Native Americans, I mean, you know, African-Americans getting reparations. I don't personally agree with that. I know there was like this whole thing about that in San Francisco and but people from Native American tribes, if anybody in the United States deserves reparations, it's them. I mean, they to this day are still living under military oppression. Like maybe people outside the United States don't know this, but Native Americans live on military bases. They don't get to like buy a house and, you know, live their own life like normal people. They live in a on a military base and they're provided housing, they're provided certain things, but a lot of times these neighborhoods that they live in are just shit, you know, full of crime, full of alcohol, drugs. I mean, you look at like the Apaches, these people who were once, you know, great, like they could survive in a desert. They could survive in a place where there's barely any food and thrive. And they've been taken off their, their ancestral land. And now they're just like dogs in a cage. I mean, it's really sad to, mm -hmm. to think about, but it all started with New England. It all started with groups like Harvard and Yale because the first Christian missionaries to sort of try to uh, Christianize the Native Americans were from Yale University. They started a, a missionary school called the Stockbridge Missionary School in Massachusetts. And during the Revolutionary War, all the Native Americans who had joined their side and said, all right, we'll believe in the Bible, we'll do your thing, we'll live in your cities and do this thing. They all got turned into prisoners of war. So it's like, okay, we trusted you. Now we're your enemy, you know, even though we surrendered and said we're on your side, they they were still the enemy and they all got put on some freezing island and off the coast of Massachusetts and died, you know? And so this is how Native Americans were treated from the beginning of the country, not just in the 1800s when the treaties were being written and the buffalo were being killed. From the beginning, the Native Americans were sort of politicized by the intelligentsia of the day and made to be like this sort of pariah, like, oh, they don't believe in our God, so they don't, they're not worthy of this land. Let's kick them out, and if they convert to God, well, then they can stay. If they don't convert to the Bible and our ways, well, then they have to go. And this is, I mean, this is the sort of, you know, this is how America got started, the, the land of the free, home of the brave, land of religious freedom. And, you know, the, the original inhabitants were all told, if you don't convert to Christianity, you're, you're done though. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we're not taught in school. It's because of groups like Skull and Bones, which standardized the education system about 110, 20 years ago, removed all the stuff that made them look bad and, and left this propaganda for us to just sort of sift through and get you know, confused on. I mean, a lot of our history that we're told about America 
revolves around battles and wars. And there's so much more than that. There is so much more than just battles and wars. You know, I mean, if you looked at the average high school history book, you'd think that people were born with a gun in their hand. It's so violent, you know, and that's just not the case. It's, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more endearing and, and human, like life inspiring when you actually like kind of sift through what people back then were saying. Like, here's an example. Thomas Morton was a man who came over to America for religious freedoms. He was a pagan in Europe you know, when pagans were not really that popular at all. And uh, he came over to the Massachusetts. He founded a little colony that he called Marymount. And uh, he became the enemy of his friends that were, you know, also European because he decided he wanted to trade with the Native Americans and he gave them guns and all this stuff. And uh, that was, you know, considered a really bad thing to do because the colonists were afraid that the Native Americans were just going to, you know, come and kill them all, which sometimes that did happen. Uh, and here's Thomas Morton giving them guns. They're like, hey, man, like we only have one advantage over these people. You know, they can't build guns and you're selling them guns. What the heck are you doing? You know, and, and this is somebody again, like he's at a time when most people were afraid and would never leave the, you know, confines of their little villages because they're afraid of the wilderness and the scary native americans this guy was like nah we're all cool i'm gonna sell them guns they're gonna teach me which animals and plants to forage and kill and hunt for and you know and it was a pretty pretty good even exchange up until you know when the colonists came and burned down thomas's house and kicked him out of town you know it just and the the worst part is is Thomas Morton was a was their prisoner. They're starving, and he's like, "Well, you you guys burned down my house. You you destroyed all my stuff. I could have cooked for you. I could have hunted for you. You know, it's winter. You guys are gonna starve. Why don't you give me a gun and I'll go hunt? I'll go get some food for all of us." So the rich people in town were like, "Yeah, go for it." So he comes back, and he had just enough for some people to eat, not everybody to eat. So he's like, all right, I'm going to go back out and get another deer. And the rich people, they're like, no, you're not. Go back to prison. We have our food. And everyone else in town starved. The rich people were able to eat. and They put him back in prison. So this is the kind of socioeconomic dynamic that's been ingrained in American culture, the haves versus the have-nots, elite, sort of the upper class, uh, takes its, you know, whatever it wants and the lower class suffers. I mean, this is something that it's not unique to America. It happens all over the world, but it's definitely something that goes against this American dream that we're all given. Um, and I'm not, you know, trying to be nihilistic and say there is no American dream. I think there, there has been, there was, but it definitely it's built on a bunch of lies. And I think Yale and Harvard are part of that. They're like these propaganda machines. And because people benefit from being a part of it, you know, it's not something that's very likely to be exposed because you know, why would you turn against the thing that 
made you a millionaire? Why would you turn against the thing that made your life set? You know, these people, they go and they get a doctorate or a law degree from one of these schools. They're not, they're not going to turn against the school, right? So I think enough of en enough people are put through these institutions to protect it from suspicion or from you know people maybe seeing what's really going on, and that that is this is sort of like an intelligentsia uh, control system. Like they're controlling who isn't who gets to the point of changing, right? Like who can reach that point of changing the future, changing society, we're going to decide. It's not going to happen organically anymore. It's not going to happen randomly. Colleges are meant to take those natural drivers of society and to um, sort of suspend them in this sort of artificial matrix so that any innovation that happens happens for the system and not for humanity. I think that's one of the big problems with the university system and the college system. And I'm not anti-education, not at all. Uh, I think everybody deserves an education. Uh, but I, I do think that the educations that are being given at some of these schools are warping people away from A, the truth, and B, uh, a healthy future for the majority. I think what we're heading towards, if we let these schools sort of manage humanity is a is a healthy future for a very small minority of people and that's the people that have the money to afford it while everyone else is you know being used as a as a slave i mean uh, most people aren't aware of the fact that they're a slave but they're a wage slave we're all wage slaves in these capitalist countries um you know it's a little more obvious in a place maybe like china um, where you're sort of, you know, your money is gone, it goes to the government. At least that's what we're told. I mean, I've never been to China, so who knows? It could be, you know, all propaganda and they're living a great life over there. But, uh, but yeah, it definitely feels like Harvard, Yale, and these Ivy League schools are a part of managing society from the top down. And we can't count them out when we look at the world and we say, there's all this war, there's all this starvation, there's all this poverty. Who's to blame for that? Ask people, ask yourself, really, who's to blame for that? If not Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford, and Yale, these institutions that claim to be the most achieved, the best, the peak of human intellectuality, yet they're letting the world crumble to pieces. I don't think that's because they're foolhardy. I don't think that's because they're just screwing things up. I think that's because they've presented a world to us that fits an agenda, okay? They've presented a world of choices that are managed from the beginning to lead down a certain desired result. So you have A, B, and C choice, little Johnny, pick whatever you want uh but ultimately you know a b and c were pre-decided and pre-manufactured based on you know where that would lead you so you guys said you like tangents i think i just did a whole rant so <laughs> no that was great but yeah one thing i said me and aaron talk about the education system all the time and yeah i'm definitely with you that everyone deserves an education 
But when I look at the education system, all I seem to see is lack of creativity. They do not allow for creativity. They do not allow for debate. They do not allow for out-of-the-box thinking. And there's basically a criteria which schools, colleges, universities are all given. And even a lot of the professors that are in there don't understand that this criteria is to sort of shunt out any creativity or any creative thinking. But then, so I guess this is leading to a question where even though there's, they've put everything in place to stop people from being creative, thinking out of the box, becoming sort of an individual and their own person, what happens to those select few people that filter through the system but still come out being creative, still come out being... Uh, their own person thinking outside the box do they somehow obviously this is just theory but do they somehow get swayed towards these groups of elites that they in a sense that they get summoned into these groups and brainwashed in a completely different way which we won't even be able to comprehend well that I, I don't know. What I do think is that people who go through these institutions and their, you know, creativity is still intact. I think they're maybe not exactly what some of these groups are looking for. Because some of these groups, they're looking for people that aren't creative. They don't want someone who's independently thinking. They want someone who's going to follow orders. To your point, that's a big reason why our education seems to you know, take that creativity potential away from us, you know, because they don't want us to be thinking outside the box. I want us to just be in a box, you know, working on a, you know, conveyor belt. You're just doing one task over and over again, right? I think that's kind of one model of education that certain countries have been, have been given. But as far as like how these groups manage you know who does what and and how they control people i think blackmail has a big part of it and blackmail obviously we know you know from the whole epstein thing can be kind of perverted and disgusting but it can also be something as simple as like hey if you don't do a b and c i'm going to make sure that you get an f on your next test or I'm going to make sure that your, you know, next, you know, car payment doesn't go through. Like I think there are other more subtle ways that people get blackmailed by their superiors or by powerful people around them that aren't necessarily always like, you know, oh, you did drugs and on a cruise ship with some underage women. Like that I think does exist. I'm not denying it, but blackmail can be a lot more subtle than that and even even it could be implied. You know, I think that's a big way that people are sort of led down a path that maybe doesn't match who they are uh, on the inside because they're sort of subtly being curtailed away from their true human desires uh, through work and different influences. You know, I, I think it's just the way our society has kind of been designed to take people's... Uh, you know, free will and marginalize it. Well, the way sort of we're being manipulated right now, um, sort of this is outside of education where we're being manipulated through, I'm going to use um, entertainment as the example. So when you're talking about blackmail could be subtle. The, what I can see at the moment happening, happening with 
companies such as Disney, uh, Netflix, they're all financially backed by BlackRock, who are obviously trying to push their agenda out more and more. So, yeah, from sort of backing up with what you're saying, they have a very simple proposition. If you don't push A, B, and C agenda out, then we won't financially back you and your company will end up dissolving or your organization will end up. And and yeah, I think they can even do it like clandestinely, you know, where maybe a company doesn't even understand why it's going out of business, but maybe they made a decision that went against a more powerful company two months ago and now they're facing the consequences. I think, yeah, that's a big, and especially with the type of capitalism that we have, I mean, I'm not an economics major or anything, but, you know, the way people are manipulated by shareholders, the way people are manipulated by boards and stockholders, it's, there's a lot to to really be, you know, rethought when it comes to those, like, higher orders of the economy and how there's this sort of trickle-down effect of, you know, well, if these companies are, you know, preparing for, let's say, climate change, well, because those are the top five companies, every other company that wants to be as successful as them now has to follow that model. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, well, everybody got a shadowy call in the middle of the night and said, sorry, mate, you got to use carbon credits. No, I think maybe it's a little bit of like, you know, people are just not, thinking rationally or maybe about these things and they just say oh well big companies doing it we want to be big we got to do it too follow follow the leader follow well, the it's leader. where greed takes over right because these people in charge of these companies the bottom line is they want profits and they'll be pretty relentless to go after whatever they yeah i've i've worked for small companies before and they're not owned by black, like they've got BlackRock don't have any shareholdings in them or anything. So there's no agenda being pushed on them, but they're seeing big companies do these like green initiatives and things like that. So they're sort of just copying what the big companies do to make themselves look like a big company. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a, a, a way that this sort of system manages its influence in a subtle way, you know, where they're able to sort of, uh, stack the cards in their favor for long enough to where people just think oh well they're that's who's successful that's who's wealthy they don't necessarily think oh these people have been sort of given an easy road to that success or maybe this success was manufactured in some way i don't think people necessarily instinctually think of that because there's there's this other kind of idea in america that well everybody's sort of self-made you know, oh, well, he's just a hard worker like me. That billionaire, he made that money himself or his father did or his grandfather did, and it was all through hard work. You know, there's this sort of misnomer in America that wealth is like a uh, is a positive attribute, which it, it could be. I mean, obviously, it helps your life, but I think that a lot of the, the nepotism is taken for granted and these nepotistic sort of ideals uh work their work themselves synergistically like what's good for one nepotist is good for another and they can sort of work in a network even though they may not be related at all and probably even 
to each other's detriment because I think, you know, there's not enough room on the top or whatever the saying is, right? So, you know, the, a lot of these powerful families, they end up using each other and then compromising each other or, you know, throwing one of another under the bus to, to get ahead. And I think that's a big dynamic with these groups as well. And the way Skull and Bones has avoided maybe succumbing to this sort of uh, group versus group warfare that goes on, these sort of battles between secret societies or secret groups, it's it's because they're for them like to understand skull and bones, you gotta understand the the life of a college student, right? I mean, you guys, I assume you if you haven't been to college, you know what college is like. You, senior year, you know, most time people are probably like phoning it in, right? You're 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 nearly done, you're on your way out. Senior year might be tough, you might have some tough tests, but for the most part, it's a pretty easy year compared to your other years. Well, this is the only time that someone can be a part of Skull and Bones is during their senior year. They get initiated during their junior year. Over the summer, they go off who knows where, come back as a senior, and that's when they're Skull and Bones. So they've they've achieved the highest you know rank you can in college, the senior, and then to boot... They are now a part of one of the most exclusive clubs in American collegiate history. So this kind of creates a social dynamic where, you know, I'm one of I'm one of the the best, right? So I don't need to fraternize with these other folks. Kind of creates this realm of elitism, exclusivity. Oh, we're exclusive, but it also creates this sort of bubble of privacy and secrecy. Because there's no, there's no need to brag to anyone else at Yale, oh, hey, look what we've got, because you're the cream of the crop. You've got what you need. It's all being provided for you at this club. So there's not a lot of room for these seniors to go and like spread rumors about what's going on while they're skull and bonesmen, because by the time they've even participated in the most of it, they're about to graduate. So... You know, a lot of the ceremonies that they go through take place at this time of the year, right before graduation, right before they're out of there. Um, because May 15th, uh, about 10 days ago, they tapped in the next 15 initiates who will be a part of Skull and Bones uh, in the, the class of 2024. As the class of 2023 graduates this year, they select 15 people to take their place. Um, and yeah, so it definitely feels like once they leave Yale, once they leave Skull and Bones, they never quite leave their affiliation with Skull and Bones. And, uh, and because of that, they're able to sort of network in this really unique way where maybe they get a job at a company that there's no other Skull and Bones men working at but because they have connections to Skull and Bones and there's people on the board or there's people through, you know, influence, however, they can get people in positions of power. And next thing you know, they have this network. They have this network of people. I mean, I don't have a list in front of me, but just off the top of my head, I can name a few people uh, that might surprise people. It's like, uh, the guy who started FedEx was a, a member of Skull and Bones. The guy who started Staples, 
I mean, there's a couple of companies that are like, oh, huh, interesting. Um, and then there's just random politicians who have been a part of it, people in the military, people in NASA, people in like high science, genetics, things like that. And then, you know, there's artists and media personalities and you know, just kind of maybe journalists and authors who have been a part of it. So it's not all, you know, um, BlackRock CEOs. You know, they, they kind of spread themselves out and, and get like a good swath of people. And I think it's, it's all strategy. And it, it's not about, you know, having the, the most prestigious club at any college. It's about creating a power network after college, you know. And that's what really Skull and Bones is about. I mean, sure, there's a lot that goes on while they're at Yale, to be initiated into Skull and Bones and all the ceremonies that go with being a part of Skull and Bones. But I really don't think any of that's as interesting or worth mentioning as what they do after Yale. You know, from what everything I've I've learned about their rituals and things that they do as Skull and Bones men, it seems like any other mystery school. It's about initiation. It's about you know, realizing that you are not your physical body. They do this sort of like uh, resurrection ceremony. And this is something that many cultures have done. Uh, you essentially just fake a person's death, uh, convince them that they're about to die, and then, you know, show them that they're still alive. And it creates this sort of near-death experience, life-changing event that can end up bonding someone really tightly to the people that they experience that with. That's why indigenous tribes would do this kind of thing to, you know, strengthen the bonds within the community. Uh, they would kind of scare the crap out of the adolescent males and make them tough, you know, man, show them, hey, you know, you, you didn't die from this scary monster thing attacking you. So you can fight a lion, you can fight a cheetah, you can fight a hyena. Right? I mean, this is how some indigenous tribes still operate to this day using these rites of initiation. Skull of Bones is no different. They're just using it for a different purpose. They're using it to, uh, well, have incredible economic sway and power. What's the criteria they use to choose, select the um, next set of Skull and Bones? So, like I said earlier, it used to be mostly people from certain families. You know, there's a sort of what we call in the States, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant like that's a, a term for a certain group of people. Um, those families traditionally were a part of Yale and Harvard's history. And, you know, a lot of those people became like presidents, governors, you know, landowners, company owners. Now, since the social cultural changes in the 60s, there aren't any racial barriers to being a part of Skull and Bones. There, and there aren't any gender barriers so that, you know, you can join Skull and Bones from pretty much any walk of life uh, as long as you're a Yale student, which is great. I think, you know, why not? Uh, but it is interesting, like, now it seems like they're selecting, you know, maybe like some Dubai millionaire's son or maybe like a Chinese, like uh a, a kid from china whose father works in the chinese navy you know like they're they're selecting students like this now rather than maybe in the 1900s early 1900s they'd have like a guy whose son was a part of 
the Goodyear family, you know, uh, tire company, you know, or they'd have a guy who's, whose family fought in the Revolutionary War. Like, it's very much selected on lineage. But now that the sort of racial and, and gender barriers have shifted for them, it's, uh, it seems like it's an international politics. Like, you look at some of the names that they have, uh listed as you know uh who's been a because you can find like who's been a part of skull and bones anthony sutton published like a huge list of everybody who has been a part of it from like 1981 to 2012 so not the last 10 years but up up to then and in like the 2000 early 2000s it was people from all walks of life joining skull and bones and i think it was mostly to um create this political power, you know, on an international scale. They want to mm. power. I suppose it sort of ties in with the rise of the internet, the rise of global globalization. It all sort of works in tandem because they get more connected or you start discovering more powerhouses around the world. And I, I think you mentioned that at the beginning, if they're all about infiltrating certain organizations, then they're going to infiltrate other countries sooner or later. Because uh, it's well, from what it sounds like, it's happening every year. There's so many more people into it. It's a bit like a, um, a bit like a virus spreading, and they're just infiltrating all these different niches, all these different sort of tribal groups. Even uh, even Japan. I mean, it's funny. Like, there's a guy buried in New Haven. He's a Yale professor named Arthur Hadley Twining. And he spent some time in Japan, and now he's buried in a full samurai suit. And from what I've heard, there was some like propagandization that went on in that time period. These guys, British types, rich types, went over to Japan and convinced them to fight the Russians. It sort of got this whole wave of patriotism uh, through Japan. And it was like this reimagining the samurai because the samurai hadn't existed in Japan for like 400 years up until the like when the British arrived and discovered Japan, as they like to say, um, you know, the they, they the samurai culture was not a lot. It was it was something from the past. And in order for Japan to be like an ally versus Russia, the Brits went there and kind of stirred things up and romanticized the samurai and said, like, you guys were once great warriors. Go be that now against the Russians for us. And uh, I think Yale was a part of that manipulation as well. You have this random Yale professor dressed in a full samurai outfit. And, and ever since then, Japan and New Haven have had this kind of sister city uh, and not, not, Obviously not Japan because it's not a city, but uh, one of the cities in Japan, I don't remember the name, has like a sister sister relationship. I don't know if it's official, but with like Yale University specifically. Um, and you'll see like, you know, people from Japan, people from China, uh, very wealthy people from those countries in New Haven, you know. And I wonder, you know, do they select students who have family ties to maybe like powerful families over there in order to sort of bridge this gap between the east and the west this sort of royal families because the west 
and the East have always traditionally had these royal families. I mean, a lot, many countries do, you know. I think a lot of them are kind of linked up through these secret organizations, the Saudis, the British, the Japanese, the Chinese. I think that there's a sort of uh, government of elites, you know, that's managing the way the world works for worse maybe for better i'm an optimist i don't necessarily like to think that it's all evil but when i see what i see happening with skull and bones as much as i'd like to be optimistic it just confirms what i've already suspected that there's not good stuff going on with skull and bones you know is there a reason why it's called skull and bones yeah well there's a couple of things with that so like I said, it was a, it was an it was a second chapter. So, some people think that that number that they use three twenty two is like a calling card to the fact that they're the second chapter. So think about this: three twenty two, uh, founded in eighteen thirty two. So we got that thirty two in there plus a two three twenty two. Uh, I guess Anthony Sutton's analysis was that maybe. That means in 1832, this was the second chapter, right? So there's one interpretation. Uh, but the skull and bones thing, you know, whether it was an old German organization or not, there's a couple different reasons why they might have picked those as their image. You know, obviously the uh, Jolly Roger flag is something that the pirates used, and pirate culture was very much informed by the templars and before them the phoenicians uh navies boatmen they often have these sort of occult rituals to give them good luck on ocean voyages and if they're crossing the uh horse winds there's something called the horse winds i think they're in the atlantic and the indian ocean they would beat a dead horse on the ship you ever heard the phrase beating a dead horse that's where that comes from. They would literally have a dead horse on the ship and all the sailors would line up and beat it in order to give themselves good luck while passing through this one part of the ocean. It's, it sounds ridiculous, but this is the kind of stuff that was going on. And with in England, actually, uh, the graves and the burial grounds, there would be men that worked there called the bonesmen what they would do with bones well the further back you go you know people had all sorts of beliefs about bones some people believed that bones could be like a talisman you know sometimes people would take bones and they would use them as uh, instruments maybe carve them into different things and uh you know i'm sure there were reasons that wealthy people would want their uh deceased relatives to be safe and sound in their you know resting place underground so there are these men that would work the graveyards called bonesmen um and the, the skull and bones fraternity at yale university existed at a time when it wasn't legal to go and dig up bodies but in the 1800s they were already well aware of anatomy they were trying to study anatomy and they wanted to know as much as they can about the human body so they thought, well, we need dead people to dig up and, and cut up and look at their organs and stuff. And my suspicion is that they would recruit young men from college to go do this because it was a medical school. Harvard was, so was Yale. 
So maybe they had their own gang of grave robbers to go around and get cadavers whenever they needed cadavers. This is, you know, something they'd probably want to keep a secret. It's not exactly a comfortable uh, reality to know that, you know, your, your local hospital might have stolen your aunt from her grave to do a freaking, you know, brain examination. I didn't give them permission to do that, right? So that that's that's partly why I think Skull and Bones has this sort of uh, morose implication. There's also the thought that, you know, like I was saying earlier, it goes back to the Templars, uh, the skull and the femur bones, you know, uh, were sort of like battle trophies. If you killed someone in battle, you would take their femur bones and their their head from them so that in the afterlife they wouldn't be able to find their way home or whatever right they don't have a head they can't walk so and there's also the thought that maybe they use these skulls for divination so they would like drink out of them like cups or even like have a skull and meditate with it like stare into the eyes of the skull and so there's all sorts of weird like tangents I've gone down trying to explain skull and bones and why it's called skull and bones, why they have skulls in their basement. There's tons of options. I haven't decided on any. I haven't found one that's more, you know, correct than than any other. I mean, how could we know if it's correct? I mean, I've never been in the tomb, but they call it a tomb. So you know, they call their headquarters a tomb. So if there's any indication of you know, what they have in there. Uh, but yeah, Skull and Bones. They're, they're, they're a German organization from the beginning. So there's, there's a whole other conversation there too with um, this German form of magic called Teutonic magic oh i've and, heard of this yeah the teutonic knights and the teutonic magic is sort of like german you know because germany has only been around a, like less than the united states Germany's younger than the united states actually uh they used to be like prussia and uh you know for i forget what the uh the proper term oh bohemia was one of the places there too there was all these, you know, kings and queens and stuff in in Germany, um, and it was kind of interesting, like that around the same time that this group of Germans, like, they kind of got ixnade from the Vatican and the Catholic Church, and they were like, "All right, well, we're just going to do our own thing now," and after that you see these like German groups popping up everywhere and doing really weird stuff. So I'm not completely like at the end of this rabbit hole yet enough to have like a definitive conclusion. But I do think that the royalty, the monarchy in Germany hasn't stopped. Like the same way that the English monarchy is kept going and, you know, the queen died and now they have, king charles or whoever right um i think the the germany has a similar situation going on with bohemia and like those old vassal states that had kings and queens and they all kind of fell to the wayside after the world wars uh, but i don't think that they 
disappeared. I think they just went underground and now they're doing some sort of, I mean, they're probably the ones that like the CFR and the WEF answer to the Bilderberg groups. Like those are the, the people behind those groups, I think. And they started chapters of secret societies like skull and bones in order to influence politics abroad. I think I'm 75% sure about this. Um, the British royal family has some German royal family blood in it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's even uh, that's even like proven through their name. The uh, mm. I forget Windsor. Yeah, the Windsor, and there was like I think in in Germany there was something like the Holska Castle, and the Windsor family was a part of that traditionally. So yeah, and I, the Bush family is related to that as well so like think about that at the same time that the windsor family was in control of england the bush family was in control of the united states and we went to war in iraq against the middle east like a place that's ancient you know they went they went there and they took like all this stuff out of their museums <laughs> why you know like they weren't there just to kill you know um forget his name i was gonna say bin laden but i yeah hussein thank you they weren't there just to d you know take hussein off the throne they were there much about this because i've heard that they went there because of certain technology that they had which yeah there's some thought that there was like a stargate portal underneath the baghdad museum and i don't know enough to corroborate that maybe it sounds to me like something the military threw out there to like a controlled hangout, like to get people off away from the truth, you know, because there were some really fishy things about what they did at that museum. And I think the way that they control people from looking into that is by giving like a very sci-fi explanation so that the average person hears Stargate and they think, oh, that's nonsense. No need to look further. Yeah. Crazy talk. Yeah, if they heard maybe like stolen ancient artifacts, well, that's a lot more reasonable. You're not, I mean, you know, you're not talking about something like, we're not talking about like uh, New York City here. We're talking about the cradle of civilization. You know, there are ancient artifacts there for sure, and possibly some that may have like implications, global implications if they're translated. That's one thing that I think people don't, quite give enough credit to is like we've we've taken for granted the rosetta stone as this translator of uh ancient text and you know the guy who did that like he was some french archaeologist i'm pretty sure he was working for napoleon bonaparte like i don't know if he's the most trustworthy guy and we've been taking all of our trans translations of ancient texts from that point on as you know his translation or based on his translation so i'm no scholar to be able to like point out the intricacies there but i do think that it's very easy for like a government to go in and say oh no we were just looking for a stargate that didn't end up being there uh and in reality they're you know covering up maybe some information that politically would uh, compromise the integrity of like i don't know the constitution or maybe one of these governments in europe i mean if you think about the american colonies and how they took the land here um 
it was unjust. It was unlawful. And I think that these nations have gone and done the best they can to erase any proof of anyone other than the Native Americans being in the Americas uh, in order to justify that political sort of land claim. And how do we know the same isn't true with uh, other places in the world where maybe there are documents or ancient things that would maybe compromise the sovereignty of a country like Saudi Arabia or like Egypt or like, you know, you name it. Maybe Iraq say, say had like a tablet that said, okay, everything within this boundary is ours, right? And that's what they wanted to destroy, right? It's the same reason why China goes and builds artificial islands in the South Pacific Sea so that they can expand their border, you know? Um, I think that's a lot of what goes on in these conflicts is like land. It's, I mean, it's the most valuable resource on the in the world is land because what do you find underneath it you find oil diamonds i mean what you name it there are things under the ground that are worth tremendous amounts of money people are fighting over land all the time i think ultimately like we don't have to go and like draw in these like crazy uh not as probable scenarios to understand what's going on like the stargate thing I'm not opposed to the reality of a Stargate. If real, you know, if Stargates are real, great. I think that's fascinating. I'd like to learn more about it. But it also requires a lot of information that doesn't necessarily relate for that to be true, which is why it's a good psyop, because people will then go and have to they have to prove that Stargates exist. They have to prove that, you know, whereas if it's as simple as no, the American military got paid to destroy some clay tablets because Egypt didn't want Iraq to have any sovereignty over the the you know peninsula of Sinai, right? This part that's like super contested, that part right next to the Nile River, maybe Iraq, you know, in 5000 years ago had like a city there and there was proof of it and that could have politically changed something. And America's like, now nah, we'll go give us $500,000. We'll go bust that tablet up, you know? And I think, I, I honestly think that that could be, you know, behind a lot of uh, our political, you know, uh, events is like little secret sort of historical battles that we're not aware of because they haven't taught us this, the context, the proper context in our history books. You think this is a reason why the likes of Graham Hancock gets discredited for his work and people are so rigid and won't sort of look into any other any other alternative theories to the standard theory that's being taught to everybody yeah yeah absolutely i mean graham you know he's a fascinating guy i think he's done a lot for archaeology you know i don't necessarily go with the whole alien conversation uh i'm interested i don't negate it but I, it's not, if I were Graham, Graham Hancock, it wouldn't be my immediate go-to. Although, I don't, I mean, I'm not so familiar with Graham's work enough to, to say that he's always all alien because he might believe that it were like more advanced humans in the past that were doing this kind of stuff. But I think that's ultimately what is going on is they're trying to give us this idea that 
as human as human beings we are the most advanced we've ever been this is the peak and because we're these you know big apes who love to fucking fight you know our progress has been war and boner pills you know like like that's the the height of human achievement is what we've achieved in 2023 and graham he goes and he says no 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 we can't even build build the pyramids today we can't replicate uh puma punku today we can't replicate the bimini wall today so explain to me how people did this 500,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago or even 400 years ago some of the I mean Coral Castle in Florida was built 50 years ago and I can't explain that I mean this is a guy who's five feet tall he's 60 years old and he creates this whole little area out of coral huge pieces of coral stone that weigh tons and he's you know putting them on top of each other building all these I mean if you haven't seen it before folks Coral Castle is really fascinating and it makes me think maybe levitation is possible and if that's the case then maybe these cultures in the past they had some sort of technology that allowed them to do that yeah because of the theory right that they could have used is it sound or the vibrations from sounds or the frequencies to make things levitate yeah, you took it took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, you know, with with the way our understanding of energy has changed just in the past 60 years. You know, we went from a what is it in in uh you know, joules, right? We understand force in in measurements of joules, right? Which is like strength or something stupid like that. When everything is actually electromagnetic, I think that is so much more fascinating to see the world through that lens. And once we start to re-examine all the other, you know, things that we think of the world that are kind of colored by physics, when we see that electromagnetism may be behind a lot of this stuff, I think that's going to shift the way we see like Graham Hancock's research because it yeah, it would make more sense that they levitated a lot of those stones into place. And if you understand how to manipulate the, you know, uh, frequency of certain materials, they can become weightless. I mean, this is something that's been proven in laboratory settings with, uh, you know, certain materials they can make, you know, something that in all other environments would just be on the ground it's now floating how is that happening magnetism electricity and i guess you know the structure atomically uh, all play a role so yeah maybe that was what was going on at coral castle or the the pyramids you know they you were think perhaps the elites are trying to hide some sort of technology from the mass that if we if the masses had control this technology or could use this technology it would take away the amount of control the elites have got yeah well i mean the number one thing they're hiding from us is is the the knowledge and understanding of our own mind i think that's what they're constantly working against is is to keep people from understanding their own mind and the the limitless nature of your mind i think that's really what our society has done so well is to give us this box that we're stuck in and most people 
unfortunately, they're happy in that box. You know, folks like us who listen to podcasts like this one, we broke out of our box years ago. It's the only way you can find a show like this is having the intuition and the the ears for it. You know, I think shows like this can maybe wake someone out of their box. But for the most part, if you're in the box, it takes like like your own soul. Your soul has to like get you out of it. And I think it's it's like a domino effect. You know, the more people that kind of lose touch with their soul, the more people will lose touch with their soul in the future. And the opposite is true. The more people that can like maintain connection with their soul, the easier it is for others to get out of that box and connect with their soul. You know, and um as much as the media gives us this like picture of what America's like, I think you know, most of the world, not just America, is full of people who think outside of the box and want to make the world a better place. And the way that they keep us from making the world a better place is by constantly putting, I guess, compromised, because we're all human beings. I don't want to say some people are like, you know, controlled or, you know, like these celebrities have no soul or something. They have a soul. They've just been, you know, led down the wrong path. They've been led down a path that has made them into wolves among sheep. It made them, you know, these sort of wolves in sheep's clothing, you know, kind of using us for their benefit. And I think that if they had the awareness to see that transparently, they wouldn't want to do that anymore. Yeah, but you can't necessarily blame them because they've just not been, they might have gone through their whole life without being exposed to the type of information we might have got exposed to just off and off chance whilst we were what, 10 11 years old we might on the off hands have come off chance come over um come across a video which didn't exactly i wouldn't say it awakened us but it might have just uh, tempted our curiosity a little bit and i think having something like that early on puts your mind in a completely different zone where as you progress through life, you start questioning things, even if it's a little tiny bit to begin with. And then you'll start seeing things from a different angle. And as things roll out, as um, the elites start making the decisions that they're making, you start looking at the other side of it. But a lot of people don't look at the other side of it. And they go on, like we're talking about going on tangents, they go down a completely different tangent of fame is the way to go. And you can't blame them because that's the way society has been built. That's the way the culture is set up definitely in the Western world that you need to be the predominant figure. And this is how you need to do it. And they, and they give us these idols in order to, again, like maintain this artificial control over society. You know, if they can control what people are looking up to, they can mitigate, you know, where society, what direction it's going. I think the biggest thing that they have, uh, going against them is the human like the human ingenuity this curiosity this soul component that exists within all of us yes they can dampen it yes they can kind of make you forget that that is a part of you 
but ultimately every single human being has a soul and when they're shown another soul their soul lights up when you're shown a person who's depressed who's on you know all sorts of pharmaceuticals who's being you know put on a stage to made to sing and they're doing it well because they've done it a million times and they do it you know with all their heart but really there's something phony behind it because they've done it you know a hundred times in a month and they're they're not doing it the same way they would if it was really coming from their soul i think that over time has replaced what we used to know like in a small community in a small town let's say without television, without access to the rest of the world, there are people who naturally find a musical talent. There are people who naturally become the comedian of their little community. They make people laugh. They bring joy to people's day. We've manufactured and artificialized that by, you know, creating these stages and lights and, you know, all these big spectacles. And there's something very unhuman about that that has a residual effect on the rest of us uh, i think that's on purpose you know I, naturally you know we all have these kind of inner talents um and i don't think necessarily like entertainment is even like you know it's sort of like a silly thing because it's like taking something that is so uh natural and a part of just like normal human life and it's almost like putting too much attention on it to the point where it becomes like this egotistical thing like oh yes i'm so genius that i make everyone so entertained like no i think entertainment was more of like in the past was a way for people to bond you know it was a way for people to get to know each other in their small community and to relate to one another and now that our that this mechanism has been shifted into this kind of global stage you know, we're kind of, it's less relatable. I don't know, maybe that'll change and things will, will become more authentic, but we're definitely in like a, an inauthentic uh, dichotomy right now as far as entertainment goes. Like, and that's why social media, podcasting, and, and like that kind of like person to person content is doing so much better now because it's the most authentic thing around person-to-person content you know people making their own stuff on youtube on a podcast this is becoming uh ex an extreme problem for the legacy media because they can't compete they can't compete with the average person who you know can come up with something interesting in two hours and publish it in the next hour you know like that's as simple as it is in the past it would have taken like you know a whole room of people writing some crap and then another guy has to approve it and then they got to film it record it whatever so yeah I, I think we're we're heading towards good times and the more the better the future looks the darker they're going to show us the future because they don't want us to see the bright future ahead of us they want us to kind of create this chaos by getting ahead of our own abilities to manifest you know it's like i was saying earlier you know we are we we have everything in us that you know that soul component in us um there's nothing that needs to be added to that you know i think human beings are born perfect and we kind of we've been kind of entrained by our society to devolve after earth you know that might sound a little hippie but uh it definitely 
Definitely feels that way. Yeah. I wouldn't say it sounds hippie. To me, it sounds like this might sound a bit, um, I don't know what you would call it, but it sounds like something I needed to hear right now just because of the journey I've been on with Aaron with the channel. Stuff does look dark, and you saying they want it to look dark isn't something I necessarily, I, I, I would say I knew it in a sense, but I never really put my finger on it. Yeah, it's something that I think I knew, but I never really thought about. Once you said it, it's sort of like hit the nail on the head. Thank you. So that definitely sparked something in me because that's why things are looking cloudy, and it's not because things are cloudy, because they're not, because, like you said, authenticity is just around the corner and it is coming back. Well, and, and also, you know, we have this incredible power as a collective consciousness on the planet to create and manifest a future that we want and the way that they get ahead of that is by adding you know negative potentialities to the mix and that's what the news is all the time the news is constant negative potentialities hey this just happened you know this awful crime just happened in this neighborhood what's the immediate thing that you think you don't think oh god thank god goodness i wasn't there thank goodness for the people who didn't get hurt that were there you think oh that's gonna happen in my neighborhood or i'm not gonna go to that neighborhood anymore because that could happen again you know like it's all about creating these negative potentialities in people um and and really i think what we need is like maybe more of a conclusive information. Like, and I don't even think the news is even important. Like, <laughs> I wonder like now with apps and stuff, how like media is going to change. Cause now people have the potential to get really only information that matters to them. Whereas in the past it was kind of like, here's the news like sit here and wait until one of these stories is relevant to you, you know, like you, you sit there and like, Oh, they're talking about my hometown, you know, but now like you can have an app that gives you only news from your hometown or even like your little block if you're in a big enough city. Right. So I think all of that is going to slowly get replaced by something more authentic and it's, it's just a matter of time. And now that we're kind of in this person to person world, it's just going to take people kind of coming up with those ideas and innovating to create a more like human oriented world. Cause I think right now we're living in like a kind of government oriented world or, or group oriented world. Like the world is oriented towards whichever group has the biggest and baddest weapons and the information age has to smash that because I can't shoot you right now. Like, obviously, I wouldn't want to. You guys are my friends, you know. But like on over the computer, I can't reach through and punch you. I mean, maybe if I was like digitally savvy, I could like hack you or something. <laughs> but I think we're we're reaching a point where like those traditional means of coercion and force are just not going to apply as much because we have this digital separation. We have this imperative for authenticity. And we also have a record now. Like I can't go and just like knock someone over the head unless I find a place where there's no street cameras, right? I mean, in some cities, that's the reality now. Other cities, not so much. You to watch yourself, you might get knocked out or what even worse. But yeah, I think that, and I'm not like advocating for a surveillance state or anything, but I think that this is like the, 
the balance that we're heading towards. Um, and hopefully we, we reach a situation where those groups like Skull and Bones and um, the Bilderbergers become essentially unnecessary or ineffective because the dynamics of society have changed to the point where a secret society or, or a group working with this sort of co conspiratorial goal couldn't operate. I think that's a possibility. It might sound a little, you know, far-fetched from where we are today, but I think that's like how evolution works. You know, not Darwin's evolution, but like organic natural evolution, the kind of evolution that you can observe in nature. Animals adapt and grow and change and everything around them adapts and grows and changes, right? Just at a different pace. Animals, humans possibly do it at the fastest pace. There might be smaller organisms that do it faster but on our scale we're probably probably like the most fast when it comes to adapting and changing right a hummingbird or a, a squirrel maybe takes two three thousand years to adapt to a change that it only takes us five years maybe um maybe not physiologically speaking but like mentally physically emotionally we are adaptive and that can't be stripped from us uh, as much as, you know, we want to watch these like movies like The Matrix and all this stuff that shows us like an Orwellian sort of nightmarish future, I don't know if that's even possible because all like every single person would have to co-sign that in order for that kind of reality to be created. There will always be some tribe that doesn't play ball. You know, there's always going to be some remote island where the news just didn't reach them. And I think that works to humanity's benefit. And it's kind of like the 99th monkey effect. Uh, they observed it in Japan where the snow monkeys on one remote island learned about the hot springs. And after one group of monkeys learned that you can swim in these hot springs during the winter and it's not going to like burn you or whatever and it's pretty comfortable on other islands where monkeys had no contact like these groups of monkeys were separated there was no like oh one monkey kind of makes his way to the other islands they were separated and they all instinctively almost like a genetic informational download at the same time within the same time period we're like okay we're going in the hot springs after only one group of monkeys figured that out so what does that say about humans if if that can that can be observed in populations of, you know, uh, monkeys. Why can't humans operate under that same dynamic? I think humans do operate under that same conscious dynamic uh, genetically and mimetically where we all kind of get these downloads simultaneously, not like uh, one nation can be like uh, isolated and like, advance so far ahead of the rest of us because we're all genetically electronically eh, that's not the right word informationally like light like information that's not even physical it's it's so conscious it's on the conscious realm and it's like once it exists it exists everywhere like when you turn a light on in the room there's no more darkness it's not like there's one little corner of darkness in the top ceiling where the light bulb 
doesn't reach to. No, everything gets spread out evenly when you turn the light on. And it might be a little dark in some parts of the place, but it's a it's an even spread. And I think that's how information works. And it's been demonstrated with that 99th monkey. Uh, I don't know if that was an experiment or it's just something scientists observed, but essentially well, a concept. I've got a, something that sprang to mind um, as you went through that really good theory. But um, so look at North Korea today. How long do you think that can last with the explanation that you just, just gave? How long before because it's only so long they can live like that knowing that the rest of the world is sort of carrying on as normal yeah how long could something like north korea last do you think well i mean think about it the korean war was a war between the united states and korea and um it's never ended it's still going on to this day there's a demilitarization zone the dmz that splits north korea and south korea so i don't even think like that is necessarily north korea's creation i think that's more to blame like the united states and china for what's going on in korea like you see basically like chinese influenced north korea versus the west influenced south korea and they're in like a stalemate where south korea is clearly benefiting their economy is huge samsung toyota right or some car companies hyundai probably and what does north korea create <laughs> creates people who freaking run out of their country and like risk their whole life like that's their only export is like deranged citizens or <laughs> estranged citizens right so so yeah i think that it's more or less like uh with that specific example it, it, it's exactly your, to your point like it's inextricably tied to the rest of the world like north korea could not exist the way it does without america and china and russia and england all doing what they've done for the past hundred so years I wonder how long that'll last too, but yeah, I, I, I've heard some people suggest that it's just a CIA operation, what's going down in North Korea. Like they've used that country as a sort of experiment to see how a totalitarian government affects humanity. And they've done these kind of things you know, on a small scale and on a large scale. Some people say North, you know, China and the communist country or Republic of China is in the same way a sort of experiment um in japan there they turned a former toyota factory a huge toyota factory into the first smart autonomous city it's not finished yet but there's another example of an experimental location where they're you know experimenting forms of government or forms of uh, society organiza organization yeah, I've heard China was used as an experiment and because it's been so successful, that's why they want to start implementing certain things they've put in China into the West. Yeah. Yeah, the smart cities. Yeah, I think, you know, America's an experiment of a different kind, you know, like uh the the monarchies of Europe I don't think ever really gave up their power. I think they've been in control very subtly 
for hundreds of years and they just kind of divvy up parts of the world and say okay spain you're going to deal with like this part of south america and mexico portugal you're going to deal with this part of south america uh dutch you're going to deal with the africans here uh, in this part of africa the italians you're going to deal with like the north africans and they just divvy it up you know and now you have like europe which is like the brain of the world controlling the various slices of the earth around it that's why you see the uh the united nations map with europe and the you know uh arctic circle at the center of the map flat earthers will say oh that's because they're acknowledging the flat earth and i'm thinking maybe but really it's just that's their point of view it's a eurocentric dominated world and if you look at the map from europe at the top that's what it looks like right it looks like the map that the un uses the united nations why would the united nations go with a eurocentric map well because they're in control of the other nations i mean it's it's that simple it's not some you know filipino guys that are controlling everything it's it's not even the guys in dubai who have enough money to potentially do that uh it's the europeans and i wonder if maybe like you know again dubai isn't another one of these like experiments the same way north korea is and these communist countries were hmm. so um i've got a question around basically germany in a sense um, me and aaron discussed on the podcast i think aaron brought it up in one of our pods um that hitler when well, he was running nazi germany or was it before he had a woman from india working with him and teaching him some of the ways of ancient hinduism hmm. do you know anything around that well it yeah as a matter of fact it's kind of uh it's an interesting story so the the english and most of the languages in the west are indo-european in origin so there's a sort of common ancestry between all of the ethnic groups that were born from europe india and even parts of the middle east it's just one common sort of human group right a haplo group or whatever they call it in uh, anthropology and the germans knew this because that was around the same time this science was being developed this sort of these study these things were being studied in germany where most of the universities the big universities were back then um and yeah you know one thing that people don't really talk about with world war one is the german india hindu connection like hindustan was fighting england so was germany so germany was like hey india let's link up i'm gonna send you guns you guys are gonna keep britain busy here while we're fighting them on the other battlefront right this is a war strategy so they had tons of germans going throughout india and vice versa even in america you have the german agents and hindu agents working together to smuggle uh weapons through texas to the west coast so then they can you know sail them through the pacific into uh the south uh, indian sea so there you go i mean there's the there's the political reason but 
yeah, there was a sort of metaphysical interest there as well, where clearly the Germans were mystified by the yogis and the different uh, mystics that you know were very much a part of Hindu culture, and they found this sort of lineage, this common ancestry. So they thought, hey why don't we synthesize a lot of this stuff hence the swastika you know being flipped on the reverse and becoming you know well i guess before it was known as the swastika it was reversed they reversed it and turned it into this like power symbol which it, it always has been and it, it's you know that kind of symbol i think is used in every culture around the world i mean it's not just hindu culture but uh around that time theosophy was very popular theosophy was a, a sort of pseudo religion created by folks uh, like helena blavatsky and others and they were these occultists from that time period and back then you know religion had just sort of eased up a bit so people were kind of free to explore spiritual practices that were once banned and obviously in India, these kind of mystical arts had been practiced for hundreds of years contiguously. So all of these kind of blended together in this German view of, of, of themselves, this idea that we are like the um, Aryan man, the Aryan elite, the, uh, I think they called them Wundermen or something like that, like basically Superman. You know, this is where the superhero idea comes from. Superheroes were invented around this same time. You know, there were comic books back in those days, and they would have like cops fighting bad guys and stuff. But this kind of occult magical stuff mixed its way in. And uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting now because now, like, a lot of the ideas that came out of this Nazi interest in Eastern mysticism. We would consider them like new age stuff like kundalini and meditation like all of this stuff was a part of that culture of like uh reconnecting with their ancient roots the germans believed that you know uh in the very very ancient past they were the aryans and that they were you know these like super beings that the gods actually created and then spread them throughout the world from India to the Middle East to Europe. And, uh, you know, so it was sort of like this racially charged idea. Uh, it's definitely still present today. I mean, you know, there's groups in the Ukraine who identify themselves as Nazis that are fighting the Russians. So, uh, you know, it's definitely not like a arcane belief system. It's still alive and well. And it's kind of fused into like the, uh, neo-pagan groups as well that are popular in Europe where you know people uh, realize hey I'm not so Christian I actually have like pagan ancestry so I want to learn about that kind of stuff instead of the Bible you know I think it's a it's all related to this kind of um, I forget the the term that they use to describe the 1700s but it's there's the age of enlightenment, but it, there's another term that they use. It's like the age of spiritual something, unraveling or awakening. And it's because at this time, a lot of the uh, very strict, rigid 
religions, uh, organizations kind of eased up a bit or through political or, you know, worldly events lost some of their power and influence, right? So now these smaller groups of subsects of Christianity and Judaism and whatnot are practicing what are what were once banned occult type practices out in public you know the, the spiritualists they were doing like these seances where people would come and sit down and hold hands and the psychic would you know pull in the consciousness of somebody's dead uncle and then they would talk to that guy's dead uncle for the hour right i mean this is the kind of thing that was going on in india too with the swamis and the uh yogis right who some of them were very honest and and spiritual others were just like uh uh tricksters you know they would do like sort of like uh carnival tricks to get people interested in i don't know signing up for something or or giving them money right they would do like the thing where they climb up a rope and the rope is like just standing in the air like you know uh only on the ground and or like the snake charming right that's like a stereotype but all of that is a part of this culture uh explosion this metaphysical explosion that happened prior to world war one specifically in germany but not limited to germany and it, it developed this kind of really uh, pervasive philosophy that Hitler used to his advantage because for the 30, 40 years prior to Hitler kind of coming into power, the German people were all uh, excited about this idea that, oh, we're the great Germans and we have this uh, magical ability and we have this like ancient magical lineage. So it's essentially propaganda that they were all, you know, ingesting for uh multiple years before hitler came along and just like put a spark to the dry kindling and said like yes you are great be great be great you know because world war one they were all crippled their cities were bombed destroyed and here comes hitler like i'm gonna make this great again like make germany great again right where have we heard that phrase used before so yeah i think that's it's a very complicated subject but then when you look at like some of the more strange things that happened during and after World War II, like uh, Aleister Crowley being sent to fight a German magician, there was a, you know, Aleister Crowley, the famous occultist, he was actually working for MI6, the British Special Forces, and they tricked one of Hitler's wizards, because, you know, Hitler had like professional magic wizards that he would use you know, to help him win battles. He sent one of them over to England to fight Aleister Crowley. And Crowley, he just set the guy up and uh, the Scotland police ended up arresting the wizard. And <laughs> that's so magical. But he, he like flew there, jumped out of a parachute with all these magical sigils on his on his jacket and landed in Scotland ready to fight Aleister Crowley he lands in some field and you know sirens and cops and they all just you know grab him and throw him in jail so we know that this kind of thing like not only happened but it was taken seriously it was taken seriously by hitler like this you know as awful and evil as he was he was you know a very um impactful military leader dare i say you know he definitely affected the world's events 
Some people think that he was propped up by uh, money influences, the kinds that were circling skull and bones. So it all gets connected, you know, like uh, skull and bones. Actually, they would the Yale University itself sent men, college age men to go fight in World War One, even though. The United States was not participating at that time in World War One. The guys at Yale were so patriotic to the English cause that they, for fun, went over to Germany in planes and bombed people. I mean, could you imagine that? Like college students being like, yeah, hey, like we're not soldiers, but we love this war so much we're going to get into planes and go drop bombs on on iraq could you imagine if someone did that like today or afghanistan right if someone did that today like no way these kids at school they they hate war you know, they're protesting war even though the the school they go to is you know getting money from these conflicts right so so yeah i, I mean it's it's a whole flipped inverted you know thing where you realize like, oh, what I thought was one way is actually another. And all these people who think that this is that way, it's actually the other way, you know? And I think that's a big reason why this like entrainment on society is so effective because it's, it's, it's this Hegelian sort of double think where there's like, they're always keeping people within these two choices it's like this divisive divisive strategy where if you give people two choices they'll always team up against each other you know i, I don't know if that's an inevitability uh, logically speaking but i think that that's what's playing out and uh it's not well, organic i think we saw that sort of exacerbated during the pandemic yeah oh, the yeah. Vaccine, yeah oh We've yeah that divide i don't think i've seen a divide this big in my life well during <laughs> the COVID period yeah, absolutely. And even now, like people are still so just brainwashed that they refuse to see the truth of what just happened in the past, you know, two or three years. I try to speak about it in veiled terms because I, I never know where your show's gonna go. I don't wanna get you guys flagged or anything if you do put your show on YouTube. But uh yeah, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous to hear some of these people on the left and the way they're so confident about uh, and so self-righteous about this and they're utterly wrong i mean they're utterly wrong i heard a woman trying to interview rfk uh who you know he's making a run for president he's very anti-vax and she she didn't even let him talk mm, she basically just yeah you saw that too mm. she, she presupposed his answer and then debated him as if she had given him an opportunity to talk which she didn't and she didn't even let him i mean defend himself and the poor guy obviously has issues with his voice you know his voice box so you're just going to talk over a guy not give him a chance to interrupt or speak the it's worrying just, thing um about an interview like that is a lot of well, left-leaning people especially will take that as a successful interview right and that's the scary part is they look at that and they think wow huh that stupid old man he couldn't win a debate against her and it's like debate i mean he the poor guy just got yelled at for 10 minutes you know he didn't even his mic wasn't even on for half the time they turned it off on him it looked like you know so 
Yeah, I I think when it comes to that divide, it is artificial because I mean, when I uh, before I quit my job as a delivery guy to become a podcaster in that in between period, like when I was getting my podcast off the ground, I was driving for Lyft, and eighty percent of the people that I picked up were like us. Even though I live in a place where it's, you know, people vote Democrat and it's a pretty liberal area, most people were like, yeah, this is crazy. And I, I didn't wear a mask because I don't wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask. It's my car. Screw you, Lyft, you know. Uh, and most people, when I told them, like, hey, you don't have to wear a mask in my car. I'll just keep the windows open. They're like, oh, thank goodness, you know. But that, from the beginning of this whole thing, reassured me a lot because i realized that the people we see on tv fighting this stuff the, the people we see like grouped up together with masks protesting anti-maskers or or the people who are like screaming and getting into fights at like a cvs because one person's not wearing a mask like those are such small isolated events and because we're in this age of information where anything can be recorded and broadcasted instantly the media makes it seem like that's happening everywhere all the time all at once all around you and it's just not and it takes you know maybe being a lyft driver who who's a little chatty to figure that out you know i would just chat it up with the people in my car and i realized like oh for the most part we all kind of see the same thing we're all we're all just trying to get by we're all humans with the same you know three basic needs you know, we all want to have a, a relationship and find someone we love. I mean, it's 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 really kind of beautifully simple when you look at it like that. And the media tries to complicate it so much, so much. And and like I said earlier, if we're gonna head towards a more authentic person to person, peer to peer relationship with entertainment, I think that'll change too because people will realize like. Why was I being entertained? <laughs> I have stuff to do in my life, you know? Like, what, what, what's the point of sitting around being entertained when I could, like, find much more fulfillment from being engaged with my community, accomplishing a goal, doing something for my family? And I think that's how people actually live in maybe more connected parts of the world where maybe the, the modernity hasn't taken over so much, you know? Places where people still work to put food on their table every day, you know, with their hands. Uh, I think, I think life's still like that there, which is reassuring, you know? Um, but you know, the, these groups like skull and bones, they've modernized the world to bring it back to where we started. Like it was Yale university that first distilled rock oil to make petroleum. If we didn't have petroleum gasoline, the world would be a completely different place absolutely completely we might not have had world war one or two because they wouldn't have had the vehicles to to fight each other you know they would have taken months to even get to each other but because we're like rapidly getting closer and closer to one another your know, things are gonna the chaos is gonna be turned up a bit i think but that doesn't mean that we're heading towards all chaos i think it's just like it's like the the double-edged sword you know everything has a sharp side and a dull side you know we're kind of getting the the dull side that hacks inefficiently you know and i think in the future maybe 
it'll be more sharp and precise and things will work more efficiently we can hope well what we're reading this book at the moment um i don't know if you've heard of it it's called the fourth turning and it's basically it describes society and how it develops as a cycle so and at the moment i think we're approaching what he calls the chaos and the, the crisis part of the cycle and then after that it's the awakening so what i think is going to happen is it's going to get a bit chaotic over this next probably decade and then after that we'll start awakening and then things will build up and be more positive going forward for it then to happen again and the last time it was chaos it was world war ii <laughs> yeah so it happens in 20 20 year stages okay so every 80 years you sort of have a new that it sort of resets then yeah it sort of it falls in line with the average lifespan of a human wow see now and the ancient people had ways of describing this concept right the kali yuga cycle describes the iron age the lead age the silver age and then the gold age and then it goes back to the lead age you know it starts over again uh, i think the other cultures have other ways of describing it but uh it's amazing how in the past maybe what took 20 years now took 100 years so maybe what used to be a 400 year cycle is now an 80 year cycle and uh yeah i wonder i wonder if 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 that's connected at all but i, I think i have heard of that fourth turning i've also heard of uh, a similar concept with generations where every four generations you have like four different archetypes so one generation will be like the uh the classic kind of uh you know pr uh protagonists or not protagonist pragmatists right where the the generation that follows the pragmatists will always be kind of more artsy or more creative less worried about that pragmatism and then the generation to that is reactive and then a generation to that is proactive. And then it starts all over again with the pragmatism. Yeah, he, he talks about this in um, the book as well, same, same theory. I think it's a Carl, Carl Jung theory, right? Right, yeah. Carl Jung, most likely. Uh, one person that, actually, it's funny, the guy who wrote my favorite book about Skull and Bones is also the same person that brought that concept up on my show, a gentleman named Chris Milligan. Uh, he he co-wrote this book but he put put it together which was the the most important part because there's a bunch of people who have written about skull and bones but no book other than fleshing out skull and bones for the audio listeners covers nearly as much and uh yeah i tried to go in and corroborate everything in this book to the best of my abilities and i haven't found anything that is uh inaccurate you know uh, being here in new haven I have more access, you know, to like certain resources. Just being in the city itself, I could go to the library. I can go to, you know, a building and see on the side of the wall, oh, this was built in 1768. You know, like we have some buildings that are that old here. And uh, it's kind of fascinating because, you know, it's not very old for where you guys live, but it's pretty old for where we live. And one of the big, interest that got me to look into all this was the whole tartaria theory which i don't know how much weight you guys put into that but kind of upset me a bit to find out people thinking like oh yeah 200 years ago it was a completely different 
civilization that was here and the guys who came in and took it over, you know, like that theory just didn't make a lot of sense to me that there was this big, great reset in the 1800s. If you haven't heard the theory, I'm not going to go and reiterate it because it's not really my cup of tea, but it essentially inspired me to like look at history and look at my local history because I know the town that I'm in is at least 400 years old. You know, there's a, there's records of people living, dying, having kids, living, dying. I mean, going back 400 years, you can prove that those people are there. You can even see where they're buried, you know, um, and that's kind of been the most fascinating part is like learning all this really unique stuff about where I was born. You know, we usually take that for granted, like, oh, who cares about where I live? I don't live in New York City or I don't live in L.A. or I don't live in London. You know, like those are the, that's where all the action is. You know, no, there's so much more stuff to be found, uh, especially if you're interested in the alternative. You know, it, it's right underneath your feet. You just got to look for it. Do you know, with you being on the East Coast, have you spent much time on the West Coast? Never. I've never been past the Rocky Mountains. Hmm. Do yep. you think there's, using the pandemic as an example, because obviously you spoke to people on the East Coast when you were doing your uh, driving, do you think there's quite a large divide in terms of coast to coast with their opinions on how things are run um, in America and globally no not really you know california there's so many people there that it's like it's its own country in a lot of ways so like for as many people as there are in california that like are 100 chock full of nuts and drinking the kool-aid there's just as many people who are like really really pushing waking people up because like especially in California, there's something about people from California. They're just like they're just different. They're they're unique. If you're born in California, I th there's something about it. I've I've some podcast friends out there, and we see eye to eye on a lot of things. It's interesting the Oregon and Washington people I've spoken to from there, we're very different. Uh, no disrespect to anybody from Washington or Oregon, but like the East Coast of the United States has a very different personality and culture than the West Coast, and more so the Northwest. Like it's its own place. People, is Portland in Oregon, is that right? Uh, yeah, Portland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Portland and 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 Seattle. I mean, those are two big liberal nightmare cities. <laughs> you know, I I have no plans in ever going there. Uh, honestly, unless I'm traveling by car, because there is some beautiful stuff like to see in those states. But yeah, as far as those cities go, you know, the homeless is really bad. The the drug situation is really bad, and you see that happening with these liberal cities. And uh, you have to wonder why, what to what benefit, uh, you know, do these politicians gain from from having cities that are full of homeless drug addicts i think there is an actual benefit you know as sick as that sounds they're benefiting from having a, a city with all of these you know uh i guess you know it's funny because in america people are commodified you know so like if you're if you're sick you're worth more money 
than if you're healthy. Because if you're healthy, you know, uh, well, there's some costs associated with that that uh, I think net negative to the politicians. Whereas homeless people, drug addicts, they fall into this class of people that are useful if you're a politician, especially if you're a greedy politician, because you can use this group of victim minorities, champion their cause, get a lot of money into your city to help these people. But then that money goes to your salary. It goes to a bonus. It goes to pay off your car loan. It goes to, you know, make sure your company has a, or not company, your office has a nice, you know, party at the end of the year. So there's a lot of corruption with these big cities and they benefit from having, you know, disrepair because it's like, oh no, we need your help. We need your help. We can't do it. We can't do it. The city's falling apart. We can't do it. Meanwhile, the people in charge are living on the top floor of a you know, 30 story building, taking a helicopter from here and there, going to sports games, going to the best concerts, taking a yacht out for vacation. I mean, they're living off of the city. They're benefiting from the city being the way it is, but they're not living in the city the same way a blue collar guy is who you know drives a garbage truck and has four kids to feed and lives in a really crappy neighborhood and constantly has to worry about his car being broken into because there's guys who will go and rip your carburetor out and sell it for you know 50 bucks to get a heroin fix i mean that's the reality in a lot of these cities and uh it doesn't matter if you're in new york city or atlanta or los angeles portland seattle there's corrupt politicians. They just have a different culture. It's slightly different, but it's it's all the same dynamic. So to, to answer your question, is there much of a difference between like the West Coast and the East Coast? In a lot of ways, yeah. But as far as like the issues go and the problems, no, we all have the same problems. You know, like Portland, Maine is a lot nicer than Portland, Oregon. And that's only because there's less people there. <laughs> I mean, as far as like drug addicts go per capita, I think they probably have about the same. Uh, it's just there's a lot less people in Maine because it's freaking cold in the winter and you will not, you're not going to make it if you're homeless in the winter in Maine, but you could in Oregon if you have a fire. Um, so yeah, and not to bum you guys out, but that's the, that's the bleak reality of the is shiny i saw this video on youtube of i think it's a street in philadelphia oh yeah Kenzie. This guy was just driving down and recording and i was i was shocked i didn't expect the the image that we get of america in the uk is not what i saw on that youtube video yeah and i i like philadelphia i've been there a couple times in the past few years i've never been to kensington which is where that person's filming because that neighborhood is chaos it's only drug addicts, homeless people, and gang members. That's the only people that live there. I mean, I feel bad for any families that do have to live there because they're living through shit. I mean, even this, even the people who live on the outskirts of that have to deal with that. And, and there are some parts of Philadelphia that are so beautiful. It's like, wow, what a wonderful city. I'd love to live here, but only 20 minutes away there's like an open air drug chaos, you know, like it's just chaos over there. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I'm sure 
there are places all over the world in every country where you can like kind of pull up the rug and be like, look at this, look at what this country's hiding. You know, I think America just kind of, uh, it's definitely funny. Cause like, I don't know if you guys heard this, but like there were, there were news reports saying like, Oh, don't travel to the U S this time of year. Uh, race riots and political upheaval is, uh, you know, a likely occurrence at this time of year in the United States. And I was thinking to myself, like, that's that's a reason not to come to the United States now. Like, is that how the rest of the world sees us? Like, we're just constantly <laughs> fighting and protesting each other, and it's really not like that. It's just these specific areas, specifically in cities, where people are again used for political agendas for corrupt politicians. I mean, the whole protester situation, it, it was manufactured. You know, When there's an actual organic protest by the people for the people, it is broken up by the police. It's not quarantined or, or, or corned by the police. I mean, these protesters were literally like, like uh, guarded they had like perimeters set up by the police. Like, okay, here's your protest area. Here's where we don't want you to go. Don't go to JP Morgan's headquarters. Don't go, you know, don't go to the town hall. Don't go to city hall. But if you want to burn down the footlocker and, you know, the Audi dealership, go ahead. You know, we don't care about that. And that's what happened in a lot of these cities, not so much on the East coast because, uh, well, on the East coast, there's a lot more blue collar, people in the cities that are like screw you you're not burning down my neighborhood you're not burning down my footlocker you know that's why you have that whole gunfight in the midwest with that kid in kenosha wisconsin you know he was just trying to protect the local business using his second amendment right albeit he wasn't on his own personal property but still he has a second amendment right to defend himself with a weapon if he's attacked and uh that's what happened you know uh, i don't think that it was it was necessarily like an organic event. I think what happened was a certain group of people were given the pass to cause mayhem in Bedlam, and the rest of the country was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the America I'm a part of. Like, wh when did that become okay? Not in my lifetime. And enough people had the balls to be like, you're not going to do that in my town. And I'm, I'm grateful that people in Connecticut, where I live, have a have some self sense of self-respect and didn't burn down any cities here. I mean, there were one or two places that got a little roughed up, but on the East Coast, really, outside of New York City and maybe Philadelphia, maybe Washington, D.C., no, none of that shit. <laughs> Not what happened in L.A. Or, or Oregon. None of that stuff happened out here because people just, you know, there's more people concentrated. It's not as segregated on the East Coast. Um, in Portland, didn't they take over the, the town hall? Is that right? Yeah, they created the CHAZ, the uh, something autonomous zone. Is that still a thing today? No, I think the FBI actually went in and kicked them all out. I think some, it, if it was either the ATF or one of these like federal groups and the SWAT team went and kicked them all out. Yeah, so no, I... Yeah, the Chaz is dead, but uh, you know that's the type of people that I think used to be a big part of the conspiracy community. It's funny, like when I was getting into conspiracies, it was all people on the left who against George Bush and 
that's the kind of folks that really are out on the west coast from my my perspective it's like this type of like vegan anti-authority conspiracy theorist and unfortunately a lot of those people got swayed by the vax conversation they got swayed by the uh the the you know social justice warrior conversation which i think is manufactured by the same people we've been talking about throughout this conversation the ivy league schools you know they had this whole cultural change in the 60s and now we see those professors who were young people during that cultural change influencing a new generation to have all these new social changes that make absolutely no sense i mean 300 genders what <laughs> you know like that's it's just that's i think that's taking that movement as 20 steps too far you know I, what happened in the 60s was supposed to happen we were supposed to live in a equal society where everybody regardless of you know ethnic or racial background has the same privileges and opportunities obviously why aren't we there yet now i mean it's still not equal and these professors they want to you know say oh yeah look how good we did uh, making an equal country now you know give us your children <laughs> we're going to reeducate them the way we see fit. I mean, it's the same thing that they were fighting against, just a different iteration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think because they've pushed it so far, it turns level-headed people against the whole agenda because it's going way too far. Whereas in the sixties, it probably it made it was just made sense. It was common sense. Whereas now, like it's just it's it's gone. It's it's just gone too far. Like nonsensical. Well, they use they use drugs in the 60s to take it too far and you see where that's led us right so the hippies were like no man we're not going to play by society's rules we're going to start our own communities we're going to start our own you know governments in our own areas and then the the federal groups like the cia infiltrated that with drugs and then it became we're going to do whatever drugs we want whenever we want man and fuck you if you can't if you try to stop us and, and then what happened now we live in a, a society full of drug addicts right i mean street drugs are killing people they're not like they were in the 60s where people could get some pot and maybe some acid on the street and have a great day now it's like, hey, you want a, a new like way to ruin your life and you know basically spend all your money on something that's self-destructive? Like that's what drugs became. And then on the legal side, it's the same thing. It's dependency and self-destruction, just in a, a slower, slower form. You know, it takes longer. But by the time you're in your 70s or 80s and you have dementia. You wonder why well maybe you shouldn't listen to your doctor who gave you all these fucking foreign weird chemicals uh, i mean all the weird things that were in food back then too like in the cans and the uh, monsanto and the uh, you know the deet that was being sprayed on all the crops so tons of things that made people sick and whatnot but there's still so much so many ingredients in america that are legal but illegal over here. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the great. Uh, that's one of the great, like, I think, illuminators 
for when I, when I was younger and I was trying to figure out this health stuff, I was like, whoa, in Europe, they don't do fluoride in the water. Why are we doing that here? You know, all they say, oh, it's for your teeth. You're going to have terrible teeth if you don't use fluoride. It doesn't seem to be bothering anybody else in the world. You know, that's what one of the benefits of the information age is. is now they can't keep that kind of stuff away from us. In the 60s and 70s, I mean, who the fuck knew what other countries were doing unless you went there and found out, right? Now I can look it up and see, oh, yeah, uh, MSG is banned in this country. Why? You know, uh, well, because it, it's probably bad for you, <laughs> you know, but it's not banned in all these other countries. Hmm, maybe it's actually good for me, right? I think that's a, this is the kind of thing that people need to start to wrap their head around. And I don't know uh, how much things have changed since the EU got involved with Europe, but uh, I'm pretty sure Europe is pretty forward when it comes to like organic foods and not using genetically modified ingredients and you know you guys are oodles ahead of us in education uh, and the countries that do kind of follow that lead are again ahead in education meanwhile america is experimenting all these crazy you know genetic modified foods and all these crazy ingredients and look at where the average person's intelligence is going it's going down the drain. so i don't think there's a coincidence there i think it's all connected for sure and you know like we were saying with the hippies and the drugs that that was a step too far for the hippies and it it threw that off and you know made people kind of question that whole thing same things happening to your point aaron uh with this social justice warrior woke movement where they're going 20 steps too far and i think the reaction from the average person unfortunately is going to be maybe two steps backward and that's exactly the opposite of what these progressives want, but it's what they're going to get because they're they're not really being, uh, you know, they're not being authentic. They're just being kind of manipulated by these people who are aware of the fourth turning, aware of the generational differences, aware of the yuga cycle, and trying to be ahead of that. These puppeteers, these you know monarchs who have shifted to become plutocrats and then shifted to become like these shadowy you know capitalists behind these big huge groups bilderbergs wef and all that you know they see 20 steps ahead and and want us to be thinking 20 days ahead they only want us thinking 20 days ahead while they they're thinking 20 years ahead 20 decades ahead right so that's what we're up against. And, you know, I, I think the faster we can point out how they've done this and how they've gotten to this point, the quicker it'll all come crashing down. And uh, so to anyone listening, I say look in your own backyard because it's a lot more effective and efficient to do it that way, to start with what's closest to you and to start with, to, with what you know. And I think that the sooner people start to look around their own city, or their own town, sooner they'll see that there's corruption, there's things that don't add up, there's things being swept under the rug, and our world can't be fixed unless we all clean up our own backyard because it's one giant mess and it's like a uh, 
compound mess. So we can't fix the whole mess. We have to clean up the little messes one by one, right? And, and since there's billions of us, it's actually pretty easy. We all just have to focus on what's in front of us instead of worrying about that damn trans swimmer who got all the records or, oh, this stupid, you know, billionaire who's taking, you know, land from, you know, poor Canadians or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, this is, this is what we have to do is, is be very um, community oriented because I think that's how they're, they're trying to control us is by putting us in this big global pool. I feel like that's a, such a good message, clean up your own backyard because you've got so much more influence in your, where you live than you would on a global scale. And I feel like you know, this for Cam, um, on alternative, we focus on the global events and everything that's going on in the world, but we never actually look at what's going on at home. Well, and, and these global players are just a um, amalgamation of their local interests, right? So how do you defeat a global entity uh, in any other way than to take them out one by one, root by root, you know, strut by strut? You know, you sort of kick the legs out from under them and they have nothing to stand on. You know, these globalists, they just have their feet uh, on 20 different countries at once. If all 20 of those countries said, get your foot off my land, they'd have nowhere to stand. They'd be freaking pirates again like they were 400 years ago. So, you know, and I think that's what really it is. It's just we've let pirates take over our governments and they're they're treating them like pirate ships. They're treating the the land that they own like a pirate ship in a lot of ways. Just before we end, um, Mark, so when you talk about building, well, you're cleaning your backyard or building some sort of community below you, Around the people that you you know, and you see people that are, aren't awake or struggling to even align with being even close to awake, what advice would you give to people who are awake that are struggling with the people around them that aren't awake? Well, I get a lot of folks like that to tune into my show. So this is a great question to ask because the title of my show, my family thinks I'm crazy, right? The people around you you know, they're probably most likely the people who, who think you're the craziest because <laughs> they know you the best and they've know, they knew you when you're a little kid and then they've seen you grow up and they've seen all the mistakes you've made. And so they're, they're the people that we want our approval from the most, our immediate family, whoever they may be. And uh, I'd say just let them let them figure it out on their own as much as you're going to like learn something and want to immediately turn around and be like, mom, check this out or bro, check this out. You know, whoever it is, you know, the, the people who are closest to you, they're always going to be the most resistant in a lot of ways. And this Taoist monk that I had on my show, it's a really cool guy. Uh, I interviewed him uh, for episode 26. His name's David way. And he said, you know, I, all the things I've learned being a Taoist monk, he said, I've never tried to teach any of this to anyone in my family because if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, then they'll follow my lead. I'm the, you know, he said, and this is speaking to the men in the audience specifically, but, 
you know, he was saying as a man of the house, you know, I'm setting the pace. So, you know, I let them do their own thing and, you know, they follow the lead as they see fit. And, uh, and yeah, I, just the way he had this kind of like unattached confidence about his influence on other people really inspired me because the more you try to micromanage people, and I I do this all the time. It's one of my biggest flaws. Is I, I it's why my show is called My Family Thinks I'm Crazy because I I hear maybe my mom say something about oh my hip hurts and and then I say well how often do you walk without shoes on and she's like well I always walk with my shoes on and I'm like well maybe that's why your hips are and there are other reasons why she's having hip problems but I I try to I'm always trying to give people like advice like that like cuz to me it's simple like we've created all of these issues in human society and now we're dealing with a lot of the like side effects of these issues and we take for granted like the progress that we achieved as like all beneficial when really a lot of it's detrimental like wearing shoes sure it's going to protect the skin on your feet but in the long run it may actually screw up your skeletal health it could screw up your muscular health it could screw up your, your tendons and your knees so i as much as i appreciate my pair of shoes i try to walk barefoot around my house all the time and if I need to go out to my car, I'll try to walk barefoot, even though the driveway is uncomfortable. And like as much as possible, I, when I was younger, I used to hike barefoot, believe it or not. It's a little more difficult to get into. You got to get used to it, you know. But uh, that's one of the things that I think definitely helped my uh, posture. It helped my physical well-being in many ways. I'm a martial artist, so that's part of where I kind of experimented with a lot of this stuff. Because when I first started martial arts, I was like, you know, stiff and rigid, and I felt like I needed to limber up and become more flexible. And so, yeah, the advice to to really answer your question, uh, you know, just focus on yourself and lead by example. And you know, if somebody asks, give them the best you can. But if they don't ask, uh, the best you can do is just subtly encourage, you know, because as soon as you try to like shout at somebody about something or, you know, uh, overpower someone else's ability to decide for themselves, they're just going to be skeptical or doubtful of whatever you're, you're trying to present to them, you know, because they're going to think, well, if this is so simple to you, how come I couldn't have come up with it myself? And actually, maybe it's this way instead, dummy. You know, I think naturally people have that instinct to be like, no, I'll figure it out for it's myself. It's a bit of a defense mechanism, right? Right, right. Don't put people on the defense. Yeah, I, I think I think the best way is to lead by example, for sure. All right. This has been amazing. This episode has been amazing. Thank yeah, you. It's been great. Thank you. It's been great talking to you both. I feel very comfortable. The ideas are flowing. I like your show. And uh, anytime you'd like to have me back on, please. Yeah, that, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. All right. Cheers, guys.